Talson. Shane. How are you doing today? Um, I'm okay. I'm a little worn out. I, I got up early this morning and went out and did like outside type of things, which uh, that's it. You know, that's a subject for someday is that we need to talk about golf nerds because they do exist. It's a, uh, it's a very nerdy pursuit. There's lots and lots and lots of math involved and, you know, physics and angles and confusion and, you know, spending time by yourself in large wide open spaces. Anyway, yeah. how you been? So you, I could be a nerd playing golf, but I don't think I have the 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 requisite golf skills or or what it would take to get better at it to the point that I could call myself a golf nerd. Uh it, most most people don't. That's that's one of those things that's really frustrating about people who try and tell you how to play golf. Most of them don't have a clue. <laughs> yeah, my body's just shaped the wrong way and I don't just mean that I'm overweight. The parts that rotate just rotate differently. <laughs> Lots of people make it work. That's that's another one of those things. Because I'm a little bit of a golf nerd. Um, and that's one of those things is that like a lot of the ways that um, people are taught to play golf and how golf is supposed to work, it's wrong. That's but not I'm, not qualified to, I'm not qualified to actually make a statement on that either. So uh, I'll, just, I'll just leave that lie. You could probably get good enough to have fun, and that's really the only point. Although, like, you know, it's taken me 30 years of playing the game to figure out, like, I'm allowed to just have fun at this. I don't have to be real good at it. So, cheers. And that's true. Cheers. What are you drinking today? This is Puppers. Want to send me a free DVD from, of, of Letterkenny, then, you know, if any of you are watching... I'll, I'll accept that. I will drink a Puppers in every episode if you just send me, you know, a couple of seasons of DVDs. That's funny. Uh, cracking into what? Thornberry Village Craft Apple Cider. I've got a couple on the go. I've actually got an Okanagan here too. Oh, oh, oh my God! You've you've got multiple drinks on the go already. Well, I've only opened one. This this episode's going to be lit, yo. Oh, dude, I was actually pretty, uh, pretty in the tank after the last one. Oh yeah. Well, I got into the black Russians cause I, I didn't go grocery shopping. I didn't have a chance to oh. stop and, and grab anything more appropriate. So it was just like vodka and clue. And I'm like, I'm a little bit thirsty halfway through the show. Uh -oh. So it's like a little more vodka, a little more Kahlua and. Mm -hmm. Yep. We're a I good influence. under the influence. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's, that's kind of the point, right? Yeah. Oh. So, you know, great reception to our last episode. My wife watched, Ian watched, and that's our audience. Cheers, everybody. Cheers. <laughs> so we had a couple of things we wanted to talk about today. Uh, one of them sort of a serious issue, which neither of us are really qualified to talk about, but we should mention it. Uh, and that is uh, Bill C-19, or sorry, C-11, uh, Canada's online streaming act, streaming bill. It is actually the online streaming act now. It's been signed. Yeah. So the general gist is it allows the Canadian government to impose regulations on streaming platforms through the CRTC. You know, the very high level TLDR. Uh, what are your thoughts on it? 
I I think that it's less of an issue than it's probably been let out to be. It 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 was well, been coming for a while because I know the very little bit that I did reading up on it was that in 1991 they more or less went, you know what, we should probably look at streaming stuff on the internet because Netflix was coming out at that point, and they said, all right, well let's wait five years and and then you know see where it goes. And obviously, five years for any government is uh, about 20 years later. So here we are. Um, <laughs> oh, pardon me. That is the unfortunate thing about drinking beer. Is that there's going to be a little bit of uh, a little bit of those noises. Um, so they, I mean, they finally looked at it and it's, it's basically uh, like a lot of, a lot of Canadian streamers specifically have come out and said like, Oh my God, this is going to ruin my career. And mm-hmm. I mean, they could be right. I don't, I don't know. I don't think it's going to ruin our career because so far, you know, we don't have the, one. The, yeah, well, the millions <laughs> of dollars that have started rolling in over the last week have have really really changed my life. Um, but it's like it really it has nothing to do with what we do. It has to do with what um, you know, whatever platform we happen to be on does with the money that they make from you know throwing advertising into whatever we're doing, which is the same thing that they do with TV. And while I'm not I'm not sure that I trust any government to adjudicate that correctly um i i I think that it's less of you know a draconian march into censorship than than has been let on no i do think it can have some spin-off effects so so it's worth talking about uh so proponents of c11 uh and i just i'm gonna read my notes here um You know, they say that it simply brings online platforms under the same rules that have applied to traditional broadcasters for decades, uh, requiring them to promote Canadian content to Canadian audiences and to contribute financially to Canadian content production. Critics, and this will include a lot of those uh, sort of independent Canadian content creators that you've probably heard stuff from, are mm-hmm. worried that the law would affect content that's made by influencers or creators uh, since the act will likely force platforms to change their recommendation algorithms in search uh, of getting Canadian users more Canadian content. Uh, it's a real concern, uh, not just because of the moves the Canadian government is making, but because of what entities like Google or Netflix or whomever might do both in to retaliation? retaliate, but also yeah. in in terms of compliance. Um this has been covered to death, so we're not going to get into the nitty gritty details, but let's use Google as an example. Uh, YouTube, because it's probably the most relevant platform. Streaming's kind of murky, just you know, by its very nature, but content production for YouTube has shown to be a viable business model for independence. Um, yep. The revenue sharing model makes it possible for even at a small scale, it to become sort of a profitable thing. Um, we know Google isn't exactly happy about it. Now, that doesn't mean that they're unwilling to comply, uh, but it does bring up sort of a few angles in which they could could tackle this situation in, in terms of complying with the Canadian government. Uh, with them passing the law, uh, and if they decide to impose it, we don't know what platforms are going to be targeted and to what level. Um, one of the things that that immediately comes to mind for me is this serves as a blueprint for other countries to to do something similar like Canada's done it it's it's forced content providers to 
already develop the technology and, and make the decisions required to comply with the, the the terms that we don't know what they're going to be yet, right? Like that's the, the, the one sort of weird thing about this is like the Canadian governments said, yep, this is what we're going to do in a broad sense, but it's up to the CRTC to develop the specifics of the policy yeah. and enforce it. That's a bit of a problem. That is. that is a bit of a problem. Yeah. You know, something signed into law that we don't know what the, the specific terms of its execution and application are going to be is a big problem. I don't, here's the funny thing, though. I wonder how different this is from uh, what happened when they made laws before we actually had all of them broadcast on the Internet, like before their first reading in front of Parliament. Mm-hmm. Right. Because I, I mean, before 1991, like the the news cycle was was slow enough that you would read about this in the paper six months after it happened. You know, now we're we're actually like seeing these things in real time. Like I actually watched. Uh, there's a guy named JJ McCullough who's from BC who does a sort of Canadian-based. Uh, I don't even know what you'd you'd call it exactly. It's about like Canadian social culture type stuff. Um, and he's he's kind of a, an outspoken opponent of the bill. And one of the the points that he sort of brings up is that. Uh, like all of the things that you've said, basically. But I watched him actually testify in front of Parliament. Like that would not have happened, you know, thirty years ago. So I wonder. I wonder how different it is uh, between now and and then. Uh, that's that's one sort of, and it's just like it's just an opening question. Like I don't know what mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe it's the same. Maybe it's massively different. Uh, the other thing is is that the internet is different than traditional TV. That's a big thing I want to talk about. Yeah. So it, before we it, get into the mechanics of it, there is a couple of uncontroversial effects here. Uh, some potential outcomes. Um, one would be the widening of what legally constitutes Canadian content. I don't know if you've ever looked at it right now, but they have this really stupid scoring system where it's like if you're, if you, you know, your director is Canadian, that counts for two points. If you're, your DP, your director of photography is Canadian, that counts for one point. And just you know, on and on, and you hit certain thresholds, and it's, uh, mm. you know, it gets classified as Canadian content, whether it's produced in Canada or not. Now, our heritage minister, uh, Pablo Rodriguez, I believe was the name, mm-hmm. uh, is likely to ask the CRTC to include content such as Pixar's Turning Red, for instance, which is an American movie produced by an American company, but written by Canadians set in Toronto. Yeah. And it's uh, produced at least partially by a Canadian crew. It's something that wouldn't currently qualify as Canadian content or CanCon under the existing rules and point system. But if adjustments are made to this process would likely be considered. And I think that's a positive. Another one would be uh, Handmaid's Tale, HBO's show, which is an American show set partially in Canada based on a books by a Canadian author and again, partially a Canadian crew. Uh, There's an awful lot of stuff that gets filmed in Canada, though. I mean, like an mm-hmm. awful lot. Like Vancouver is huge. Um, I remember there's a bunch of stuff like set in New York. I, I remember mm-hmm. watching on TV in the 80s and 90s. It's like, you know, here we are in New York and there's the CN Tower in the background. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing how much, and, and I don't know the, 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 
tax reasons behind it or even just the the financial reasons like the cost of filming up here we're cheaper um, certainly our Vancouver labor, and Toronto our labor is cheaper way cheaper yep uh the other thing that you see a ton farmed out here is animation mm-hmm. like again American companies coming up to uh Canadian studios to pump out animation for some of the biggest animated productions like ever yep. Pixar DreamWorks well, there's uh, a guy that we used to work with, and I forget his name. He did a bunch of the uh, the sort of digital processing for the uh, the prequels, mm-hmm. like like adding motion blur to the digital scenes. Like he he farmed out whatever rig he had at home to do the the motion blur for that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, which is a very weird thing to do in my mind, but I guess it makes sense. I don't know. Like what and that's that's I think where the the major meat of the issue is is like what is Canadian content and does it need to like especially in this sort of setting like do we need special consideration in order to compete against American podcasts doing the same thing? Like I I don't think so. And I think that boils down to to the crux and I was kind of getting into that in the end kind of where I sit on it. Um Part of the fuzzy unknown, I guess, is what are platforms going to have to do? So let's look at YouTube again as a, as a case study. If it's as simple as them taking a section out of like the home tab of their YouTube feed. So you're not looking at your subscribers feed. You're looking at where you traditionally have just algorithm stuff, right? None of which is stuff I want to watch ever. <laughs> but, you know, if if the solution for them uh, that that is enough for the CRT to sign off and say, yep, good enough. You're promoting Canadian content is to create a section of, you know, country specific content, country specific creators sort of for that country specific audience. So I say, you know, creators from Canada and there's, you know, some quasi algorithmically chosen videos that are matched up to me as a part of a Canadian audience. I'm in favor of that. Me too. You know, for everywhere, I think it it actually makes like sense from a, as a business case for for YouTube. Like, if I was in charge of YouTube, I'm like, okay, so the whole point of this algorithm is that we want to serve things to you that are of your interests. Mm-hmm. Why why don't we show people who are reasonably local to you also? Now, the other consideration, and this would be a positive, is they do actually, uh, if they have to make changes to the recommendation algorithm. Like right now, that's such a black box. And you would think in order to prove their compliance, they would have to introduce a little more transparency about how it works. Maybe yes, maybe no. I think they could probably um, plead, uh, you know, I don't know, corporate secrets or whatever whatever the uh, equivalent of that is, because they certainly do that a lot about a lot of stuff. Uh, I think that results matter more than like, how did you get here? Who cares? Let's look at the Canadian content tab. Is it full of Canadian stuff? It is. Well, Fair enough. And, and that's assuming that that solution is a, is a viable solution. If the intention is to not just like create a Canadian section that most people are just going to ignore. Mm-hmm. And the, the CRT's requirement will be skewing the percentage of Canadian content that shows up as general recommendations. As that, a result of the algorithm, like that would be both a difficult ask and difficult to prove that 
Google has complied. Right. And I think it, it would also probably be technically more difficult because mm -hmm. if you're going to do uh, a separate tab or a separate section or whatever, then you can just go, all right, our regular algorithm is still the regular algorithm. And now we're going to have a separate one that, you know, takes, you know, I don't know, your top hundred thousand results or whatever it is and just filter out everything that isn't region specific. I wonder though if that puts like an extra burden on content creators as well to uh, to flag their content, you know, like tick off a box about where you're from. But I think I think YouTube gathers that anyway, right? Well, certainly once you've you've hit the point of being a partner and oh, yeah. you know, you're monetizing your content and being paid out for it, um, that's all going to be pretty pretty transparent to them at that point. Well, they got to send the checks somewhere, right? Yeah. <laughs> You know, there was a time, and I know some people that got into doing YouTube stuff way back in the day where when they were paid out, they were paid out by a check. Wow. Like a little more than 10 years ago now. Yeah. <laughs> ten, 10 years ago is kind of the, the very, very beginning, right? Like people who were doing stuff then have, if they survived this long, have probably done pretty well. It would certainly be the time where like YouTube started shifting from becoming this platform where people were just posting content to this platform that people could make some money on well and production value like jumped massively oh absolutely massively yeah like i mean you can tell the thousands of dollars that we've spent on set design hey i've got some sample prints of my own artwork hanging on my wall i i have an un <laughs> undisclosed brand of 3d printer in the background So here's the thing for me. I'm willing to buy that for some people behind this, their motivations are noble. I think as a group, I have doubts, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm hitting X, X, yeah, X. Yeah, <laughs> at, at the very least, I think, you know, it's misguided. So there's a couple things. One, they're treating this like TV back in the day. It's not. Where you had a captive audience. You know, back when you had two channels, if you were lucky, over the air, and you watched whatever was on them, or you watched nothing. My God, you had two channels? You you lived in the rich neighborhood. Well, they were both CBC, so. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> I had CBC out of Lloyd Minster. And it came on at seven o'clock in the morning with Spider-Man and it went off at 1130 after Knowlton Nash read the news. Ah, <laughs> uh, you know, good, but like in that days. situation, when you forced a broadcaster, Canadian broadcaster to broadcast a certain amount of Canadian production, it had a direct impact on the amount of Canadian consumption. Because you were either going to watch it or you were going to watch nothing, but that's not how online works. That's that's a good point, and it, it brings up something that I was thinking about earlier, which is this: this might be a good springboard if every country gets on board to make a sort of unified set of rules. I, like I have, I have no faith whatsoever that that will happen quickly. Because let's let's face it, it took. 30 years 
for Canada to come up with some rules. Yeah. And they still haven't come up with any rules. They've just literally said, okay, now we have a legal framework where we can make rules. Let's farm that out to a private company who has no oversight. Um, I hope it works out. Uh, but <laughs> at the same time, what could go wrong? What could go wrong? Uh, let's not make a list. Uh, so like there's, there's hope in my mind that, you know, everybody sort of goes, okay, that's a little bit broken. Let's do it this way instead. And then, you know, like every together and goes here's a, a reasonable because the the idea that there needs to be some sort of oversight on what gets broadcast on a large scale kind of makes sense to me mm-hmm. just just because i've met humans and there are some of them that i don't want to have a youtube channel what do you mean um i'm not going to i'm not going <laughs> to actually you know expand on that anymore but there's there's some people that I just I don't want them talking to other people ever. <laughs> um, but at the same time, I'm also thinking that like, is it is it really going to change, right? Like, what'll happen is is that all of the things that, um, all of the things that that might not make it into your feed, you're either going to search for because you're actually looking for something specific. Um, and you don't care where it comes from. Like, hey, I'm looking for, I don't know, a, a YouTube video about how to change a flat tire. I don't care if it's a Canadian or an American or a European or if it's somebody from China. I don't care. I need I need some pictures and some video with how to turn a wrench, right? Um, and you're not going to go, okay, well, who's who's in my Canadian content feed? You're going to go changing a tire. And if it pops up people who speak the same language that you do, I mean, I think there's an advantage to that because there's certainly... Like I can't, I can't help but imagine that YouTube is kind of dominated by English-speaking people from the United States, right? I mean, it mm-hmm. seems likely, even though, like globally, that's that's a minority, right? If if it was based on, like, who, if it was based on sort of population, it would be all right. Like, forty-five percent or fifty percent of all you videos on YouTube would be Chinese. That's where all the people are. Yeah. Um, and to, to your point about the captive audiences, it's, it's interesting because I've been thinking about like, how do, how do you make money? Like if you wanted to make an absolute massive amount of money, like if you wanted to become a billionaire, what do you do? You control the source of something. Um, and to that end, in spite of thinking that Bill C-11 is a little bit of a nothing burger, I'm a little bit, concerned about the motivations behind it because they're probably largely corporate like Mm -hmm. it's not it's not a move to uh like in anything in all of life follow the money Mm -hmm. um and in this particular case i i have to ask like who makes money from bill c11 coming into and that's where i think this all falls apart So currently there is funding available and there was more funding available through the pandemic for Canadian content creators unrelated to C11. And the process. Why didn't we start then? We could have like gotten a grant or something. I I could have bought a new shirt. Dude, it took us 10 years to get to this point. We're we're lucky we're doing it at all. (laughs) But, you know, having not spoken directly, but heard anecdotal sort of comments from Canadian content creators and, and, heard it enough times to, to believe what they're saying, it's incredibly difficult to gain access to the funding 
that is there already as an independent creator. Just so many hoops to jump through and an application process and, 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 you know, people that even got through the process and were approved uh, back in 2019 haven't seen a dime yet. My God. Yeah. What's, what's the point? Right. So if nothing there changes and there's been absolutely nothing uh, that I've heard that suggests that they've communicated that it will change, you know, ultimately it means that you're, you have to be somebody that is already self-sustainable to survive long enough to get the benefits of any funding that's available. Like if it's going to take you four years to see a dime, then you probably don't need it. Or you're already a large entity that has the money to afford to cut through the bureaucracy, right? Set up the side deals to move money. And you definitely don't need it in those cases. Well, at you know? that point, you've got enough money to hire somebody to do all of that. It, it comes back to as well. I mean, this, this kind of plays into a thing that I've thought of is that we complain that there's not enough money to help people for, you know, various things for, for whatever reason. And at the same time, we spend so much money on the bureaucracy of it that I have to think, and it's like, it, it's been a problem forever, like since the dawn of time where it's like we pay $2 billion for an administration that actually gives out a half a million dollars in funding. Mm -hmm. It's like, just give it to everybody who asks and don't administer it at all. Right. Like yeah. just take, take the training wheels off and oh, oh, somebody got money that they didn't really deserve. Okay. Yeah. But 500 people who wouldn't have gotten money otherwise, cause there wasn't any got, got money. Yep. Win. Yeah, like everything else in this late stage capitalist hellhole that we live in, <laughs> I can't help but feel that a lot of that is the point. And here's the last thing I'm going to say on this, because I'm starting to get a little bit mad. Yeah. And again, I really, it doesn't have a lot to do with me, but <laughs> some of these things get stuck in my brain. Uh -huh. At the end of the day, I'm all for funding good Canadian content. What Which I'm not, not for, and this is just as a consumer... I'm not in favor of funding bad content just because it's Canadian. And I'm super not in favor of pulling in money under the guise of uh, making sure Canadian stories are told and then using it primarily to prop up big entities that have been either unwilling to or have failed to keep up with the way content is being consumed by modern Canadian audiences. Like if this just turns in a way to uh, to prop up Bell and Rogers and some of the bigger Canadian media companies that are 20 years behind still, that's going to piss me off. Well, I think you should be prepared to be pissed off. But I do have a counterpoint. Mm -hmm. I have absolutely, or not a, not a counterpoint, but I disagree on one point. I am perfectly fine with funding bad Canadian content just because it's Canadian as long as they are things that someone is passionate about. Like if you think about, I don't know, like Amazon women on the moon, is it a good movie? Nope. Was someone absolutely passionate about making that movie? Yep. 
Like I, in that in that kind of sense, and I'm I'm really talking and like it it does it does I do agree with you on the point of mm-hmm. I, d- I don't want Bell and Rogers to get any more money. Like they're already raking in billions and billions of dollars in profits. They're fine. And honestly, if they can't continue to create content on the money that they're making, let them fail. Mm-hmm. Let them crash. Let them go out of business. That's fine. And this is where I get to be rarely optimistic. And and this is what I really mean by funding bad Canadian content is I think there are more than enough good Canadian content creators passionate about putting out good content that does, maybe not as a primary, but as a secondary motivator, tell Canadian stories. Find them, help them. Don't make it hard for them to reach out and ask for help. That's that's kind of my. I agree. I do agree with that point. Yeah. Um, but that's that's kind of also my point, is that I don't want to spend so much time and energy filtering out bad content creators that there's no money left for the good ones. Go ahead and fund some bad ones. Don't don't make it okay. You have to meet this high bar and you have to spend three years filling out forms and and okay. doing tests yeah. and and whatnot. Like just just fund them. Some of them will be good and some of them will be bad and that's okay. That's better than the alternative. I absolutely Agreed. agree with that. Yeah. You know, um, and it's I, I, I grew up in a time and, and you t- as well. Oh no, we just I was had, an, I was an adult when you were born. You're just yeah, a child. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> um, but we've had enough absolutely horrible Canadian content crammed down our throats just because it's Canadian. Name two. And, oh man. Uh huh. <laughs> I, I would. I, I would say almost seventy percent of what's on the CBC right now. Oh my God! Do you watch the CBC? Uh, no. And is, there's a reason why. Because it? it's all of that shit. I turn to to immediate like. You know, I turn to U.S. networks just because they don't have time to to show the bad shit just because it's from you know America. They 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 find the stuff that resonates with audiences, and there's so much American shit that they don't have to you know import a ton of it. But yeah, well, part of the, that's part part of being a small market too, though, right? Is because like in the states, they they can pump out like like what do they got ten times our population? Mm-hmm. Right, so if they produce ten times as much content, you can literally throw ninety percent of it in the garbage and only take the ten best percent. Whereas here, like you, you take you throw away ninety percent of of the content that's created in Canada, and it, you don't have enough left. <laughs> I mean, so we're taking the top fifty percent instead of the top ten percent is kind of my point, and it's okay for some of it to be not not great, but there have been. See, here's the thing: I can't, I cannot. And that that's this is because my brain probably doesn't store it. I can't name any bad Canadian content, but I can name some good Canadian content. The raccoons. Do you remember the raccoons, the cartoon? Mm-hmm. That was amazing. It's oh, by the way, it is on it's streaming on something. It might be mm-hmm. Prime. It's either Prime or Disney. Um and it's I mean, it does not hold up. It's corny as hell. Mm-hmm. But it's still enjoyable to watch, and it and it feels Canadian. Um, yeah, there's there's these high points. Like you go back, Beachcombers, mm. Hell, even Danger Bay. Okay, we okay. Whoa, stop. We need to we need to, to segue or or tangent here. Somebody, please, God, start a campaign to put Beachcombers on DVD. 
I will literally give up my left testicles for beachcombers on DVD. <laughs> and I know that, uh, I forget the actor who plays constable, John constable, but he's been trying to make it happen for a while. And there's, there's, uh, there's some problems with, uh, like rights to music that was on the show. I, I think there's, uh, some, some issues with, uh, the estate of Bruno Jerusi that's causing some issues. Mm-hmm. Somebody, somebody, please, I don't know, pass an act of parliament. It, it needs to happen. We need beachcombers back. We need it. Mm-hmm. The time has come. We're desperate. Please. But CBC, TVO, you know, some of these purely Canadian broadcasters, they broadcast 24-7 now. That's wrong. And the fact that we can only pick a few you know, modern day shows like Kim's Convenience and, and Schitt's Creek and stuff like that as like, Creek these are Canadian? good shows. Uh, I didn't know that. So. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we can pick a handful of great examples of Canadian content. What are they broadcasting for the rest of the day? And why am I zero interest in watching any of it? And that that's definitely an issue. I do think there needs to be some some kind of uh, we all get together and go, hey, let's make good stuff. And uh, I think part of it is. is that we have, and I know that you're into shows like Letterkenny and Shorzy, where I just, I can't get into them. Dude, but... it's, don't start with Letterkenny. Start with Shorzy. Once you finish Shorzy, which is fucking amazing, you will go back and watch Letterkenny and enjoy it. You know, Canada's a melting pot. Especially when you look at our urban areas, which are 80% of our population. You know, we, we have this idea of Canadiana that just isn't relevant for the majority of our population. And if that's what you're defining as sort of Canadian stories, I I got zero interest in it. Ah, man. Here's the funny thing though, is that like using Shorzy as an example, Shorzy is uniquely Canadian. It has a Canadian flavor and it's very entertaining, very very entertaining. I've watched the show now seven times, seven times. And the first, literally the first two times I watched it, I watched all six, because there's only six episodes right now. They have confirmed they're making season two. Um, I streamed or I, I binged all six episodes in a single night the first time I watched it. And then I did it again the next day. That's how good it is. How do you have like, time to it's, watch anything seven times? Oh man, I was up until like three o'clock in the morning. It's, I mean, it's, it's like, they're like 22 or 23 minute episodes, right? It's a half hour TV show, but still it was like three and a half or four hours of TV. And I just like watched it all in a row. Yeah. So I think we've probably beaten that to death. Yeah. Let's move on. Uh, there's one thing I wanted to talk about completely unrelated. This is a little bit lighter. It struck me as I was thinking about episode topics that I know almost nothing. Now, I've known you for for more than 20 years at this point. That's good. I know almost nothing about how you got from point A, being born, to point B, the nerd that I met. You know, I've heard some some odds and ends stories related to your past, but none of it about like shaping you into the nerd that you've always been in my eye from day one, knowing you. So I thought it'd be fun to talk about like toys and technology and, and how it could be even TV shows from our childhood that helped shape you. 
what your introduction to video games and, and computing and, and whatnot was. Well, yeah, there's, there's some things in there that I will only share with my therapist, but, (laughs) (laughs) um, yeah, cause it, it, like, I, like I grew up, like it's cool. It's, I don't know if it's cool to be a nerd now, but it's definitely much more mainstream to be a nerd now. And when Mm -hmm. I was a kid for sure. And like, I mean, we're roughly the same age ish now. Um, like it wasn't, it definitely wasn't cool. Like I grew up in a time when revenge of the nerds was a, was a major theme of the day. Um, the technology that I started with on my sixth birthday for my birthday, when I turned six, my dad bought me a Commodore 64, um, which was like a super big deal. Like I, I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't know what it cost in terms of money. It was probably like, I don't know, like 99 bucks or something. But I mean, like this was 1980. So in 1980, that was, that was probably like, I don't know, a week's worth of salary for my dad or something. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and speaking of video games, cause I, I, I mean, I grew up, uh, my, uh, my mom owned a resort in Northern Saskatchewan and we had, because it was popular at the time, a little arcade, uh, in the, the general store there were three or four video games that we, we didn't own them. Like we, we basically rented the space to the, like it was a really weird lease arrangement as I recall. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was six, I wasn't paying attention, but there was always, so there was always some video games. There's a foosball table, there's a pool table. Um, and then the Commodore 64, I, I got with it a Jumpman junior cartridge. Dude. Yeah. Which so, you can now simulate on a watch. <laughs> so, I'm fast tracking a little bit because I was going to talk about my C64 days. First of all, Jumpman Jr. is a game uh, made by Epix, yep. not Epic Games, but Epix with a, an X um, that almost sure nobody's ever heard now. of. Oh, yeah. Nobody's ever heard of this game. And it was a game that I found. Uh, now, I didn't have the cartridge version of it. I had it on disc. Um, there was a whole scene. I didn't buy it. Oh my God. I used to, yes, I know. (laughs) Shock and horror. (laughs) The school that I went to, my public school. So I'm talking like grade five and six at this point. um, We weren't one of those schools that got funding to have like Apple computers and stuff in it. So, you know, in my early grades, I saw a Commodore Pat and in grade five, six, we had a Commodore 64 in my classroom. And this is long after Commodore 64s were new. We were running a Jumpman Junior tournament ladder. (laughs) Me, another guy by the name of Robert, that we just like, we were staying in at recess to play competitively. Like, it's not a competitive game. Like, it's, you know, single player high score. Think Donkey Kong. Okay. Yeah, Donkey Kong Kong had like, like light years ahead graphics. Yeah. But This, this, this was like original Prince of Persia graphics. If you imagine that they're worse. Yes, but you you advanced to, to certain levels. Like there was one the the level that we always got stuck on was what was it called? Shreddle. It was ladders yep. spelled backwards. Yep. Yeah, yep. yeah. <laughs> no one ever got See, past that level. I guarantee no. it. It's the last one. <laughs> oh man, that, yeah, that that just made my whole day to hear that another human being not only played that game back in the day but enjoyed it. 
Yeah, it was great. I mean, I I bought a joystick. Well, I, I bought my my mom bought me a joystick specifically so I could play that game, and it was oh my god, it was it was like this brick. It was like six inches by six inches. It was like all metal. I threw it across the room several times, and it still worked. Suction cups on the bottom? No, it was heavy enough. It didn't need them. <laughs> like it was not a, a plastic joystick. It was a metal rod. That's it was insane. Great. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. That was a minute ago. I remember also that we had, uh, there's, there's another, another thing. I mean, a large part of uh, what sort of turned me nerdish, um, is, is the books that I read when I was a kid. Cause I was really big. Um, I was really big into some, uh, I, I mean, I would almost say I enjoyed reading comic books because they were they were light and and quick, but I, we couldn't afford them. So I actually I bought I, I don't think that I'm ratting anybody out here because I'm pretty sure the story is out of business. But there was a, a convenience store down the road because what would happen is, is that they would buy the comic books from the distributor. Mm-hmm. And if they didn't sell by the time the next one came out, they re- they take the cover off, send them back and say, I have destroyed the comic. But they didn't. What they did was they took the comics and rolled them up in random bundles and sold a bundle of comics for a dollar because the comics were between 75 and 95 cents when I was a kid. So that's a minute ago. Um, and and they would I would buy the bundle, right? So I had like duplicates of all kinds of different comics. And, and like I would be reading, you know, I don't know, Blue Beetle or whatever, uh, you know, but I would get one episode or one one edition, one uh, what would you call it when it's a comic? It's not important. I would get like basically one section of the story, right? Like mm-hmm. I would get Spider Man number one thirty three, and then the next one I would read would be Spider Man one forty seven. I don't I don't know what happened in between them, um, but I read like every bit of fantasy that I could get my hands on. Um, and I, I grew up, uh, like where I went to school was on a reserve in Northern Saskatchewan and our library was, you know, the experience that I have now, our library was pretty bad. Uh, but there were some things in there that were, you know, reasonably worth reading. Uh, at some point, uh, I got my hands on the Hobbit mm-hmm. and Lord of the Rings and I'm like, oh my God. This is my jam. I want to live here. Um, and that just like everything from there just like took off with like everything I could get my hands on. I read an awful lot of uh, Isaac Asimov and, you know, like the three laws of robotics. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything by Robert Heinlein just was like, yeah, this is perfect. And then same place that I bought the comics with no covers. I also could buy uh, and for the same reason, uh, paperback novels with no covers on them. And I got, I think it was blood of Amber by Roger Zelazny, uh, from there. And just reading through it, I'm like, like, this is mind blowing. And like the stories are good. There's lots of bits in the middle where you're like, Oh boy, this guy did a lot of acid (laughs) or something because it's weird, man. But some of the concepts that are like you've you've actually experienced some of the concepts that I learned in those books through Dungeons and Dragons because they come into like the way that I approach the way the universe is constructed. So, yeah, it's surprising to me how much of this came back as as you know you ask the question. I'm like I don't know if I have anything to say about this. 
And then just every time I say something, there's more to go with it. All right. So I got two questions. Shoot. What other kinds of non-computing toys or technology did you get uh, as a youth? Mm. And without getting into the the details, because it could take forever, what filled the gap between your Commodore 64 days and when we met, when it was sort of the, the late 90s, or early 2000s? computer Pentiums. yeah yeah um well here's the funny thing like my commodore 64 uh was was basically like i don't know i had that until i was 16 or 17 so i had it for a long time um i did get an amiga 500 in between there mm-hmm. um which i tried desperately to replace and i i you know managed to scrounge a bunch of amiga stuff from somewhere and then i couldn't get the accoutrements to make it work um and then my dad brought home a cad machine from a a job that he had um and i guess i was like 13 or 14 so that was that was a 386 with four megabytes of ram yeah that was it was a powerhouse machine uh non-computer toys though i mean i had i had a reasonably large collection of masters of the universe toys yeah um yeah i didn't play with dolls they were action figures but i mean looking back on it now i mean yeah they were they were dolls see circling back to canadian content i don't Uh know that it was actually canadian content but it was shit content i didn't watch transformers as a kid i watched gobots and i had gobots toys I had a few of those too because there was a there was a kid that I went to school with. His dad was a teacher, and he he was one of those kids. Um, he had like every time, every year, there or every couple of months or whatever, there was like a new transformer that would come out, right? And he had all of them, and they were all new in the box, right? Like we're seven and eight years old, and he doesn't play with his toys; they're new in the box. I'm like, oh boy. He was also the guy who made peanut butter sandwiches and put cheese whiz on them. So, oh, yeah, no. yeah. I'm not sure where he is now, but I'm I'm pretty sure it's not a good place. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So, so I, I had some GoBots. There was there was one other thing that was a massive thing because we had, like I said, we we grew up. I grew up on a on a resort, and uh, we had this this massive deck on the back of the main lodge. It was like a hundred feet long and like thirty feet deep. Like it was mat. You could play soccer on it, and we did. Mm-hmm. It was huge, but underneath was all sand. So we had like various different sizes of of like toy cars and like Tonka dump trucks and stuff. And we would build these massive cities with all these roadworks and you know run cars around them. And yeah, I hadn't thought about that in a while. Good Lord. So how about you? What, what toys and technology shaped you into the nerd that you became? So I need to preface absolutely everything that I say here with some context. My family was broke. So while it's going to sound like I had a lot of things, most of the things that I had were not obsolete, but old by the time I got them. Certainly secondhand, like we were big into yard sailing and 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 shit like that. So I'm going to talk about a lot of things that sound cool. Understand, 
it doesn't mean that we were, you know, wealthy and, and we could really afford this kind of stuff. Uh, going back to the beginning. So this is before computing. Um, did you ever get into those old Coleco? I think it was Coleco um, sports games that were basically just like, Oh yeah. Old LEDs that, beep, you know, they'd be boop, like, beep, yeah. Boop, beep, boop. Yeah. I can still remember the, the thing was massive. Like it was probably a, a, a brick like this tall by this wide. It was Bolatronic. It was Coleco <laughs> bowling, Bolatronic 3000 or something like that. Beep, boop, 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 strike. Yeah. Yeah. I had a few things like that. And I got into like the nerdiest of shit by the time I was super young. Like my first computer was, uh, I was using it at the age of five. It was a Timex Sinclair 1000. Now, anybody listening, you can be forgiven for not knowing what the hell that is. It was basically a slightly modified version of the Sinclair ZX81. So we're talking. <laughs> yeah, which you should know what that is. Oh, yeah, you absolutely should. Um, <laughs> two kilobytes of RAM, black and white display. Uh, I was writing basic on it at age five. And when I say basic, I mean like the basicest of basics. So I was creating imagery. So computing back in those days, like whether it's some of the Sinclair stuff for the uh, TRS-80, uh, I had an MC-10 or any of the color computer line or something like that. When you looked at your keyboard, you had obviously the letters, you'd have functions that would oh, do basic you had commands. all the ASCII stuff on the... They weren't yeah. even ASCII so much as they were like like quad block, like two by two blocks that would either be partially filled in black or open of different character sets. Mm -hmm. So I would be doing things like, you know, 10 print, blah, 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 you know, spaces in these characters, 20 print, yada, yada, yada. And all of a sudden I'm looping through and I've got this sort of the equivalent of ASCII art of like the CN Tower. And then I'd fire like a CLS and then I'd draw something else. Like that's when I say I was doing basic, like I wasn't thinking, you know, four next loops were about like as complex as I got. I was five years old. I was writing code before I was speaking, you know, and writing sentences. <laughs> <laughs> and I graduated up in computing from, from there. Like I had a little TRS-80 micro or MC-10, which was not much more powerful. I eventually got into like a VIC-20 and a Commodore 64. And like, by the time I had my C64, uh, people were already playing with like um, IBM ATs, like PC ATs and stuff. Um, so, you know, tying in, like I would have been 10 years old-ish when we were running those Jumpman Junior uh, ladders in, uh, in, grade school and uh that would have been what like 88 89 kind of you know the c64 was pretty old at that point i think a bigger influence on me would have been did you ever get those old uh they're radio shack branded or they often had the science fair brand like 75 in one or 151 electronic projects <laughs> yes okay so that's a little bit newer than the ones that i have <laughs> i've i've actually 
gone out of my way and I have to thank my uh, friend, Steve, former coworker for helping me find some of these. I've got some of my old kits in the office that like, they're not the versions that I, or not the specific ones I had, but the same versions. Yeah. Uh, for those of you that didn't get a good look, imagine a, a, like a hobby sort of deck with a bunch of electronic components mounted on it. And they're connected to these springs that you could go through this book and you weren't looking at actual schematics, but you were looking at sort of guides for making different things from, you know, everything from a simple buzzer circuit to uh, an AM radio. And you're just connecting the dots or in this case, jumper wires between all of the springs forming these, these different electronic circuits. And it's something that my dad and I got into and they turned me, I mean, like I couldn't go to school and talk about, that right like even the nerds well the nerds would want to beat me up fortunately i was just a gronk in school so nobody could but (laughs) they would want to (laughs) you know the nerds playing dungeons and dragons in the library at recess would look at me and say dude simmer down (laughs) (laughs) take about 10 to 20 percent off there super chief yeah Yeah. uh so so what role did your uh, Actually, let me back up. Did you get into video game consoles? Um, no, I, we could never. This is a funny thing, right? Like I talk about my youth. It's like I, I, I was unaware when I was young that we didn't have a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, like, and my parents split up when I was five. Mm-hmm. Right. And we always lived like we had money, but we didn't actually have money. Um, and I think that the only reason we could do that is because like, I didn't really have a lot of stuff. Um, I mean, we had a black and white TV until I, sometime in the mid eighties is, is when we got color TV. Um, like my Commodore 64 was like hooked up to a black and white TV. Um, so we, we didn't really have like a, there was uh, some kids down the road. We, Oh, 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 I just remembered this. My very first thing was Pong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do I do have to reveal my age a little bit here because my school did get a computer when I was in grade one. And we punched holes in cards to program that computer. Uh, and I mean, we had it, I think we had it for a year and a half or two years or something. Mm-hmm. And then we got, we got like Commodore 64s for the school. Right, which was about the same time that I got mine, and it was it wasn't new. It was like two or three years after it had come out, but like it was. I mean, back then the cycle of technology was a lot slower. Um, but I had Pong, and it was literally like this white console thing that had like a knob on either end, and you just go blink, blink, mm-hmm. blink, blink, and you could play seventeen different games on it. You had like baseball and football and ping pong and tennis, and they were all Pong. Ping ping pong. Yeah. yeah. It's just like literally a white bar and a white bar and a white square. And it'll go ding dong 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 dong. And and here's here's how old that thing was. There was not an AC adapter for it. You had to put, and I think it was 16 D cell batteries in it. Yeah. So no, no consoles. I've actually <laughs> the only console I have ever owned is a Wii. And it's in the other room. And just because, right, like a lot of the things that come with the Wii are, I mean, I don't even think you can buy the Wii anymore, uh, are just like fun little games, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't, 
I have a PC, obviously, uh, but and that's that's where I do like any video games that I play now. Like a, a console to me is just something that you do. Like I don't know, you sit on the couch and go, and then you're done. Yeah. So, and about you? You got lots of console history. Uh, I did, and again, like I came to them late. Right, so yep. I had an Atari twenty six hundred, and eventually the the next one up with the fifty two hundred. Did you have the Smurfs? I don't think I did. I know that the Atari that I got, like we got it at a yard sale, so somebody was already probably selling it off because they were looking at, you know, when did the the NES come out in oh. North America? Eighty five. I was going to say eighty six, but around yeah. there, yeah. So, I mean, I was playing an Atari while a lot of kids were playing, you know, or getting their NES. And, and I eventually got an NES in 80, 88, maybe. So, like, it was a few years late. Um, and I, you know, even when I had an Atari, uh, I was collecting, like, random shit, like Pong toys. I must have had three or four different Pong consoles. Again, picked up at yard sales on the cheap. Some of them weren't working and we had to fix up. Um. Most of them were like not the brand name ones because I think what like oh my god so there there was obviously the the Pong original Pong consoles but like which was Atari wasn't it yeah well they did Pong in the arcade I'm not sure if they actually branded the the first console I'd but most of the Coleco. stuff that I had would have been the uh, like the realistic brand name or whatever the Radio oh Shack god. brand name version of it was yep. I might have had a Mattel version of it. Oh man, yeah. did did any of them now? Because this is this is gonna gonna date me a, a whole lot. Did any of them have faux wood paneling on them? Uh, the first one just definitely did. It was sort of a ugly cream colored, like very early, almost like Bakelite plastic yep. with faux yep. wood. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's the one I had. Now that one didn't have. Uh, the turn knobs, that one had slides on it, and they, they would almost imagine something the size of a computer mouse that just sort of slid into the front of the console. You could pick them up. They had like a two-foot sort of wire on the end of them, but that <laughs> would allow remote. two people to play. Yeah, remotes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. So getting back to the question I wanted to talk about them, what role did your parents have in shaping you? I grew up in the era of latchkey kids and I was very much one of those. Like I, I mean, I, I was both lucky and kind of unlucky in that, like when the snow came off the ground, which in Northern Saskatchewan, you can imagine is, I don't know, mid July or yeah, something. Three weeks in July before it starts again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Like I, I, I remember like being so excited about going swimming that I actually went swimming in the lake while there was still ice on it. Um, and I guarantee you that was in June. It was, I, I mean, I may be misremembering. I don't know. I'm 50 now and I was six at the time. So, so who knows? But like, I was, I was I, like, I don't want to say neglected, but by today's standard, I would have been considered neglected mm -hmm. because once, once the snow was off the ground and I could be outside, I literally, it was like, Hey, school's out. I'll see you in September. Yeah. And I would, I would go and then. <laughs> I like to uh, I like to joke that I could walk north from my house in northern Saskatchewan and the next person that I ran into would be speaking Russian and it's not far off like there's a few towns sort of northish yeah. but you could plot a course on a straight line from my house that would not 
cross another human being until you hit Russia. Um, so like, and got to get into a, a little bit of, of my history here. So my, my parents split up, like I said, when I was five, uh, and you know, my mom was more or less absent. Uh, so not a lot of influence there. Um, and then when I was 13, I moved in with my dad and that's when I moved to Ontario. Um, and I have to say that becoming a nerd was almost like my father's influence on that was almost like, you will not do that. And I'm like, oh yeah, watch me. Cause that's, I mean, that's who I am. If you tell me that it's impossible, I'm probably going to try may not succeed, but I'm going to try. Um, so there was, there was just like, I don't know. There wasn't, there wasn't a lot of encouragement for me to, to pursue these, mm -hmm. these kinds of things. Although I will say like my, my dad was the one who introduced me to the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. Um, and Stephen King, you know, before he stopped taking Coke when his books were still good. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I honestly think it's just an age thing. Like he just basically, he told all of the stories that, that were good. And then he's still writing. Um, but like the, the kinds of, the kind of influence that my parents had on me was, was like very remote. Like it wasn't, mm -hmm. it wasn't like, Hey, let's, let's go and figure out, you know, how to do this. It was, you know, here's the, the resources go, go find yourself. Right. And like I say, when, like in my early years, it was like the, uh, a case of benign neglect, which mm -hmm. was like, if I need help, like it's probably there, but otherwise whatever go do your thing which gave me a lot of space to mm. like explore stuff mm -hmm. it sounds to me like your parents were a little bit more involved in your your nerditude yes, yes and no so my, uh, my parents both were key contributors but in different ways uh, my parents did split up but it was later in life when i was 13 so most of what i'm talking about is before then now my dad um, he would have been like a previous generation super nerd. Oh, no, not a great parent, but like, oh man, he, I mean, he was weird cause he spent a lot of time in a band on the road, but like when he wasn't doing that, like way back in the day, he would have been cobbling together like linear amplifiers for CB radio and stuff like that, right out of miscellaneous tubes and shit. And shortly after I was born, he got into a workplace accident and workman's comp essentially paid for him to go to DeVry. Now, this is just before DeVry became a huge joke. Well, it was probably always a bit of a joke, but um, he took his electronics hobby and turned it into a profession. He became a certified electronics engineering technician, which sounds impressive. It really wasn't. You know? <laughs> yeah, that means that you're the guy who actually like sells the transistors at Radio Shack. Yeah, or you get into like, you know, electronics repair shops and stuff like that. And that's sort of the avenue he followed. Now, why that is important for me is that like I was in an environment there where there was always shit like that. So when I got my first computer, I think it was because my dad was encouraged by DeVry as he was going to school to be like, hey, home computers are a new thing. You should check them out. And he never really got into it, but it was there. Like he probably didn't buy it for me those electronic projects kits like probably got into them because it was a shared interest, not because he was particularly supportive as a parent and we were broke. So, you know, we weren't wasting money on a lot of shit. Now my mom, on the other hand, she wasn't 
she didn't have the common interests that I had, but she was the parent. She was the one that sort of looked at what I was into and tried to make sure I had opportunities. You know, the perfect story that summarizes her role is that like, I would have been what, grade six at this point. Um, I wanted to to get a Game Boy. All my friends had had Game Boys, the first Nintendo Game Boy. So we're still looking monochrome screen, no backlight. Uh, they'd had them for more than a year or two at this point. And I wanted one. So my mom sat me down and she said, okay, here's the roadmap for you getting a Game Boy for Christmas. You're going to work hard. You're cutting lawns. You're going to save your money. You're going to put some aside. I'm going to work hard. And it often involved her working extra jobs and taking extra shifts. She would put money aside and then Santa would cover the rest. And, you know, lo and behold, I mean, mostly my mom's doing. That's how I eventually got a Game Boy uh, because she put in the work. She taught me the the life lessons around it. Like she was the parent, you know, later in years when it was like I would get my first uh, real PC, like I had a 486 that. Uh, my dad and, and his, uh, uh, my stepmother had bought for the business that I got to use. But, you know, my mom helped finance uh, like a Pentium 133 back in the early Windows 95 days that sat in my room. And, you know, like I, she probably spent two or three years paying for that wow. uh, because she wanted me to have the opportunity to, to have it. And it wasn't new at the time, but it was still a, an investment. And I think my expensive. mom had a yeah, yeah. My mom had a little bit more money to play with after her and my dad split and, you know, they were in their own relationships afterwards. But I owe a lot to both of them. You know, my mom for giving me the opportunities and working hard to make sure that they were there. And my dad just for being a bit of a nerd and allowing me to be in that environment. You know, there were times in my life where I would have been like, hey, I don't, you know, I didn't want to be like my dad. You know, I want oh to do different stuff. And now, like, I'm basically my dad. Isn't <laughs> you know, it? Oh, different God, names, yeah. different different shit. You know, he was he had a gifted mind. He really did and probably wasted a lot of it. And I'm sure you could say a lot of that about me. But uh, don't we all? I mean, that's that's the story of my life is basically wasted potential. You know, like I was I was a gifted child. Mm hmm. Yeah, I and was too. And this is another example of my mom going to bat for me. When I was in like kindergarten, grade one, grade two, I got in trouble at school because I was taking books out of the library that like weren't age appropriate. I was pulling like astronomy books, science, a lot of astronomy stuff, though. And they were like, you can't do this anymore. Like, you know, and, and my mom went to bat and said, why? Like, he knows his shit. Yeah test them yeah. like she literally forced them to, to create a test for me which i i did well enough on that they were like yep he can he can take whatever books he, he wants out and they tried to put me into like a special program at that point but my parents decided you know what like he's socially awkward enough and that would probably <laughs> send him down a a, a dangerous yeah. path so i, I didn't There's get into that sort of special school but yeah, there's a balance to be found between like, you know, uh, developing a young mind and, um, you know, sending you down the path of you don't have any friends and we might find you in a clock tower somewhere. <laughs> uh, anyway, so before this gets any more dark and deep, I, uh, I need a, a refill on my drink and it's unfortunately all the way out in the fridge. So we should pause for a second. I don't know. Is that is that a thing we can do? Yeah, I'll let it out. Go get your drink. We'll get into table right. talk.
So here we have a rum mojito from somebody I've never heard of. I sent my wife shopping and uh, she doesn't buy based on labels or content or alcohol types. She shops based on color and it's awesome. Because <laughs> I try stuff that I would normally never try. And occasionally something comes out of it where I go, oh, that's nice. Nice. Sometimes things come out of it where I'm like, oh my God, what is this? <laughs> Who thought this was a good idea? All right. You want to so, get into table talk? Sure. Let's talk about table talk. So your group is back from hiatus. We are. We're actually playing tonight. Uh, I will be going almost directly from here to there. Did you have a session last weekend? We did. And um, in preparation for this, I read over my my notes and uh, the major takeaway from me checking over my notes from that campaign is that I take terrible notes. <laughs> and also I'm not paying enough attention because I'm like, okay, so I, I mean, here's, here's a summary of what happened. First of all, we had, we had one character uh, named Cletus who uh, was a really interesting character, but was kind of... Um, like a little bit of a one note kind of joke. Um, so the player who was, was playing that uh, decided to, to switch, uh, switch to a different, different character. Cause it's, it's six months have passed since we went on hiatus. Um, so we came back and we're basically like the crew of a spell jammer. So switching characters in and out is easy enough. It's like, Hey, a, a crew member has been reassigned somewhere else and you've been assigned a new crew member. Boom, done. Um, so he came back as a priest of death uh, and apparently I have disrespected his religion. So there's some, some kind of thing going on there. It's an, it's an interesting dynamic because it's very one-sided where he's like, I don't like you because you disrespected my religion. And I'm like, I didn't, I didn't even notice you were religious. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we were given an assignment to check out a lighthouse, which is like, a, you know, in, Spelljammer space. I don't. I really don't understand how Spelljammer works. It's you get in a ship and you'd be like, I don't know, shoot at bad people. Um, so that like some some lighthouses are now emanating a dark light instead of a bright light. Um, and they had sent out a crew to investigate, but they didn't come back. So we spent a week, you know, sort of getting there. Oh, pardon me. And then we get there and there's like three or four tents set up as it looks like a work crew has done some stuff. And then, you know, uh, it looks like there's been some kind of fighting and like there's ghosts and then there's ghouls. And then there's, this is where like my notes get really bad. Like I do remember we fought two hellhounds. Um, one of our, uh, one of our characters uh, tried to make pets out of them which is a thing that he does. And it's really amusing because it's, it's like most of the time it's like, this is a really inappropriate thing to make a pet out of. He's like, I'm going to feed them and see if they'll be friendly. Um, <laughs> uh, so there's like a bunch of undead things. And then we, we find a spider that is rainbow colored, uh, which is like communicating with us by weaving words in its webs, you know, good pig um yeah 
And then we did. We had like some more fights. Upstairs. This is where my notes get really, really bad. Where I'm like, okay, I know there was a fight, and we did a thing, and we have to like channel some kind of arcane energy into the light to make it good again. And then apparently there's like a, a tiefling who teleported to the basement. I'm like, uh, what happened? <laughs> like I'm literally taking notes as we're playing, and I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. Um. Yeah, the nice thing is, is that my character in that campaign is is actually, um, uh, like just a little bit simple. Mm-hmm. So my my whole thing and like my story arc for my character is has kind of been completed. So I'm not not really sure where to go from here. You know, my I think I, I talked about it last time that there was, you know, space elf empire that sent a golem to kill everyone in my village. I managed to get revenge by kicking the space princess into the black hole and. Now I'm like I'm generally like I don't like I've had got my revenge. Now what? Um, so I'm like fire arrows from cover of darkness and support my friends. It's pretty much where where I'm at with that campaign. But it is I mean it is really cool and it is entertaining. It's one of those sort of stock D and D campaign things that is full of like inside jokes that are like five or six years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's really it's just an entertaining way to get a bunch of people together, and nobody's really concerned about the rules very much, which puts me in the position of rules lawyer, which is a really weird feeling for me, where I'm like, that's not how that rule works. Should I say something? Is that's everybody not... having fun? Yeah, and that's pretty much where I'm at. Is I'm like, oh no, somebody took an extra attack. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not worried about that. So how about you? Did you have a game this week? I know we had a game we, this week. Yeah, it was, it was a D&D filled sort of week. I had a Tuesday game uh, with my Tuesday group, and then we got our group back together for the first time in more than a month. And I'm excited um, to see where that goes. Oh, it's... So speaking of, of campaigns that have inside jokes, we're playing a completely different campaign with the same players from another campaign. So... Being able to fold some of those inside jokes or turn them into to more than they are is kind of fun. I think I told this story, but I can't remember if it was in our unaired episode or not. I can't remember either. The TLDR, and, and if you've heard it again, I apologize. Uh, our group, when Telson was running uh, the game, uh, did a dive into uh, Sunless Citadel, right? Yeah. And uh, yada, 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 goblins, kobolds, Meepo, the kobold, the, the, the half-wit kobold joins our group. And uh, very early on as our guide essentially gets himself cut in half. And it was mostly one of our, our player characters' fault. It really wasn't. I set him no, up no, no. for you, failure. You literally, it was like the perfect, like, I can't not do this. Yeah. Um. But as other characters in the game, we held it against him. He was sort of responsible for getting Meepo killed. And Meepo was useless. Oh, absolutely. And as players, it sort of turned into a thing where we were going to, you know, eventually start our own little church as a way to, like, draw out people from another city. And that that game never got to continue, so we didn't get to explore it too far. But, like, we were making videos, like memoriam (laughs) videos for Meepo. Sarah McLaughlin music playing. Like it was all very fun. So we now have the same players in this game that I'm running. 
and different characters, but we sort of brought Meepo back. He was uh, in an encounter with some kobolds. He was like a folk hero for them where he'd <laughs> made a great sacrifice in uh, times past by, you know, standing up to the, the villainy of this evil character and revealing them and helping them defeat this dark druid in the Sunless Citadel, uh, played by one of our players, Chris. And his character, uh, completely unrelated in this game, uh, Tortle Druid slash Superman, Quig, uh, has basically become almost a, a quasi-Jesus-like character through his actions for these kobolds. And we were able to set it up in a way where, like, <sighs> this is, you know, how, how seriously you take the inside jokes. When you first kind of came into their cavern, there was a statue to Meepo on a big pedestal. <laughs> and he came in and, and performed minor miracles and helped heal them. They were sick. There's this whole sort of ongoing quest line with regards to like some poisoned rats and shit. Anyway, that's not important. What's important is the second time that he came back. The the statue of Meepo had been taken off the pedestal and replaced by a wooden carving of Quig, which is the new <laughs> character played by the same player that played the character that fucked Meepo. <laughs> in the first game. So in a weird twisted way, he's kind of fucked him twice. <laughs> yeah, it worked out perfectly. Just the idea of the church of Meepo. Cause that was, that was the big setup uh, that we didn't get to continue. It's just that you're going to draw out the, the evil church of the red something, something, yeah. uh, which were largely based on the, the red wizards of Thay. Um, Oh, which brings me to a tangent that we need to get onto. We watched the uh, the Dungeons and Dragons movie, and we should probably talk about that. Um, it was just that they were going to set out like a like a revival tent, uh, the the Church of Meepo, and wait for the the red priests to come out and say, "Hey, you can't do that here." Okay, well, take us to your leader or something. Like, who knows where that was going to go? Yeah, those inside <laughs> jokes are great. Yeah, Meepo is going to be a recurring character forever. And I get the impression that he's probably a character that sort of fits that role in a lot of people's games once they do Sunless Citadel. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's intended to be kind of like a, a you know, spoilers if you're playing the Sunless Citadel, which, you know, was originally released in 1970, um, <laughs> you know, a long, long time ago, is that he's intended to be like kind of an anchor on the group where it's just like i'll help and and he just he's completely unhelpful mm -hmm. you know he, he doesn't know anything he doesn't do anything he has no skills he's he's literally just an npc to be there for you to go oh what are we gonna do with this npc yeah get him cut in half very early on apparently <laughs> yeah, that's that's not exactly canon to the module no. for anyone no, who's no, actually no, no. Paid, played through there. It it was like there's a, a thing that like what what Chris did was actually supposed to activate something, but you know it was like well nobody said anything, so Meepo's still standing there, and this oops. trap cuts him in half. Yep. Yep. <laughs> oh, it was great. Turned into a little tension for our group. It it you know added some some depth to Chris's character. You know, back in that campaign that like. It didn't really have at that point, and and it was well, good. It he was, was fun. he was playing a necromancer, I think, at that point, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. So it was it was kind of kind of interesting. Anyway, uh, my Tuesday group, though, uh, playing in a sort of a similar setup world as I've mentioned before, uh, I've pulled them into the Feywild, and my Feywild is sort of a weird kind of like 
There's a convergence happening between the Feywild and the Shadowfell. And we got to have a really neat scene. And I got to throw a dragon at my Dungeons and Dragons group for the first time. And not just a, you know, a low level dragon. And it just played out so wonderfully, like just mm, chef's kiss satisfying. Um, one of the things that I've sort of been alluding to in, in that game, and less so in your game set in this world, because I'm not sure how I'm going to treat it there, but the idea that magic works differently, like the gods have been gone for a while in, in this plane at least, and magic sort of misbehaves. It's a little wild. It's unpredictable. But uh, one of my players decided to, for the second time, and the first time it played out a little bit differently, but tried to use divinity, trying to, to get to you know the bottom of something related to uh, the one character I was talking about last week that had the soul of a warlock inside them, and that warlock kind of had a dark patron kind of going an old God's route. But the thing I'd set up in the game was that, you know, imagine that casting spells or, or like, especially divine spells are a bit like a prayer asking for help from your divinity. So imagine reaching out to your God and somebody else answers. I mean, anyone answering would freak me out a little bit. Right. So she, she busted out divinity, just trying to, to, to talk and get clarification and the way I'd set it up, like they were literally just talking about the the, the veil between the Feywild and the Shadowfell being sort of stretched thin and the two places were being drawn towards each other. And she cast Divinity and I had whatever it is, they don't know, answer in response. And it huh? basically grabbed a hold of her and pulled. Oh. So it pulled her and the party who was all trying to support her in this spell casting from like through this thin veil between the shadow fell and, and Feywild into the shadow fell and uh, sort of this barren think like post-apocalyptic kind of dark shadowy landscape, nothingness for the most part. And they get there and they see some shapes flying around in the sky and they're like worms, like CR two level worms. So they just like, wow. Uh, my one character has an oath bow and she just sort of got her charge back on it. So you basically get to choose a sworn enemy and uh, they become your main antagonist in terms of doing damage. And as long as you're attacking them, you get some extra bonus damage. And if you're uh, not, you don't. And if you try to use any other weapon, you're at disadvantage. Oh. So she's looking at these little worm things in the sky and she's like, I choose you, me knowing that I've got a big dragon and kind of waiting, right? Yeah. They take them down, just like basically one shot the thing. They take them down. They're having a conversation out in the open, and then they just got to role play them. These these sounds like like wind slapping in sails, and they realize, oh, these these were just underlings or maybe even babies. They don't really know. But there was a big, like it was a CR maybe 14-ish dragon. Ooh. So we're not talking a juvenile um, that actually is going to play a part in the story, uh, just sort of flying overhead and they just all scattered. Now, my my party aren't murder hobos, so they're not always looking at combat as the, the first huh? 
sort of response to everything. I mean, that's two groups that you're involved in that are not murder hobos. You realize yeah. that you've beat the odds. Oh yeah, I've won the lottery twice. <laughs> but they like, you know, they're not not pushovers. Like they're not afraid to get into combat when threatened. They saw the dragon and they freaked the fuck out. It was great. <laughs> like they all scattered in different directions. They're all finding places to hide. And I basically just got to do this little scene where the dragon lands and they're all in different directions and it's sniffing them out, you know, trying to find them. I'm doing some opposing stealth and perception roles and, uh, just as they're seen and just as the dragon's getting ready to just massive acid breath attack on one of them, like they get pulled back into the Feywild by the, <laughs> their, uh, some of the, the people that they're sort of championing, uh, just kind of pull them back, starts talking to them. But it just was an amazing scene where really nothing happened. But we managed to create this sense of tension where the players were like, oh, shit, oh, shit, oh, shit. Like they were scared into inactivity where I gave them each a couple of turns to like, do you want to do anything? They're like, no, I'm just I'm hiding. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, I'm not moving. <laughs> and they rolled well enough. And and I did not see them and and rather than force them into a combat encounter i'm like then the dragon flies away then they're like oh shit we got to get out of here they hear their patron or whatever talking to them and they're like get together we'll pull you back into the the feywild so they all jump into the middle of the road and then the dragon circles back and as they're (laughs) waiting to be pulled back in they're all holding on to each other nice and tight and the dragon lands in front of them. That's when the sort of loads up for its acid breath and they just kind of get pulled back in the last minute. It was delightful. Oh, that is, that sounds like a great session. It was. And, you know, uh, part of the reason that I've brought them into, you know, out of the base world that we're in into the Feywild is so that I can give them a little more high fantasy and, and, you know, flavor right where where it's a little more gritty realistic kind of setting they are the exception to the rule and their ability to use magic and and whatnot um pulling them into an environment where they're uncomfortable and they don't know exactly what's going on don't have to handle or don't know how to handle situations like that and watching them play super conservative like it was a bit like our group playing in your curse of strahd campaign where it's just like Eventually, we got to the point where, like, everything's a mimic and we're, we're 10 foot pulling everything. <laughs> Which is, I mean, that was the greatest thing. It's just like the amount of caution was like, and it, the thing that got me in when we were playing Curse of Strahd was that you guys were like super, super cautious whenever stuff was not dangerous. And then as soon as you got into a dangerous situation, you're like, whatever, I kick in the door and run in. Yep. <laughs> oh, no, that was wonderful. Yeah. No, it's great. So are you back so, to a regular weekly schedule with that group? I think so. Um I like I we're we're back. I think we're back for good. It's just a question of like, you know, adult life schedules become an issue, but you know, Sunday night works out. It, part of the reason that we're playing on Sunday nights is actually because I was unavailable for large portions of the week until I gave up EverQuest. And now that I have more evenings free i might bring up the idea that hey we could do this on another evening you know i'm no longer i'm no longer beholden to you know playing everquest 40 hours a week 
which is, I mean, kind of painful. That's something that we should, we might, we might talk about in a different episode. And it's not, I didn't leave or quit because I just, because of any specific reason other than, I mean, we've been trying to do this for 10 years. And one of the things that was stopping us was, well, I can't do it on Tuesdays because that's raid night. I can't do it on Saturdays because that's raid night. I can't do it on Wednesdays because that's date night. And I can't do it on Thursdays because that's the optional raid night when we're doing progression raids. And I can't do it on Friday nights because, well, you know, Friday nights are for fighting or whatever. Um, you know, and then it's like, well, what other nights have you got? And I'm like, oh, yeah, well, Monday night. No, hang on a second. That's when I do XP because I have to do that because we're raiding every other night of the week. I can fit you in between 6.30 and 7.45 on Friday night. That's pretty Except much Except for the third Friday night of every month. Yeah. Yep. Or if it's a full moon. Yeah, because I really enjoy playing the game, and I enjoyed the people I was playing with. I just, it's like, you know, I've I've taken up golf again, which is probably better for my physical health. And it's just like there's just there's there's not enough time for all of my hobbies. Yeah, so yeah, and you know, EverQuest seriously in 2023, like it's probably time. Yeah, there's some things I still haven't seen, but I saw all the stuff. I mean, I got to raid Plane of Sky, and that was pretty much what i wanted to do i wanted to do naggy and vox and plane of sky and those were those were my main major things and i got all the way through seeds of destruction which is like i don't know expansion number 14 and you're doing this stuff for the first time yep yeah it's the first time i had done it well this is the second time for some of it because i had played on a on a previous server and done some Mm -hmm. of the beginning stuff um but yeah some of some of the stuff was like this is the very first time i've seen it and after a while, you get to realize that, you know, like you start off killing rats in the newbie zone and everything is just bigger rats with more complicated finishing moves. Oh, pardon me. They're not really breaking any new ground with uh, with boss fights. It's just they've got lots of hit points and sometimes you have to follow them around and sometimes you have to off tank some stuff and sometimes you have to not stay into the void zone, please. And it's pretty much it. But it was fun. I mean, it was lots of fun. It's just I'm I'm ready to do something else now. So yeah, that's. That. We should talk about the Dungeons and Dragons movie. What did you think of it, it, man? I liked it. I, I I liked it more than I was expecting to like it, especially because the last Dungeons and Dragons movie was the only movie that I have ever walked out of the theater, walked up to the box office, and said I would like my money back. Right. It, it, one of the things that struck me because we were watching it the other night and one of the, like I, I leaned over to Cindy and I said, you know what? The people who made this movie have played this game. Like they know what this game is about because all of the sort of tropes are there mm-hmm. and not, not in an obnoxious way, like treated with the respect they deserve, which is sometimes none. Um, one of the things that I enjoyed most, I think, was the fact that the main character, I, I mean, I say main character, the I, I, I don't know who the actress is who played the druid, but she absolutely stole that movie. Every scene she was in, she it was like, this is this is the person that you're watching. She absolutely mm-hmm. stole the show. Um, but the the main character is a bard who doesn't want to sleep with everything. Thank you. Yeah. And the paladin was exactly as obnoxious as paladins are supposed to be in exactly the right way. The barbarian was not stupid, 
but enough fish out of water to have all of those good jokes. Um, you it know, definitely made it the right way in that like yeah. a person who knows nothing about Dungeons and Dragons could enjoy that movie just as a, yep. a comedy fantasy sort of blend. And they yep. didn't force D&D down your throat or make you have to know it. But nope. there was such a buffet of D&D stuff just laid on top of what was already a simple but decent movie. And they put they, a dragon in it and it wasn't central to the plot. It was perfect. Yeah. And it wasn't a stereotypical dragon either. Yeah. It was fun. It was lighthearted. Yeah. And the stuff that was meta, like, you know, I mean, there was a lot of throwaway sort of like D&D stuff. Oh, I know that. Oh, hey, that's funny because or whatever. Yep. But the real meta stuff was so subtle in a movie that was not subtle in any way. Like the the idea of this party coming together and going through a bit of a hero's journey where they're literally like sailing away with the loot and then they decide to turn around uh-huh. and accept I... their fates and, and put their lives on the line yep. for the betterment. Like most parties, as they go through a campaign, have that progression in one way or another. Even the murder hobos eventually. Yeah, they have some kind of progress. I mean, I've played in an awful lot of campaigns where it would have been like, oh, they're they're going to like take over whatever. But we've got a boat full of loot. What do we care? We're, we're going to sail away. We'll come back and, and, I don't know, conquer the nation and install a king later. Yep. Um, and that, I mean, that's, an, that's a perfectly fine thing to do if that's where your campaign is going. Mm-hmm. Um, but like just the way that it came back and... I enjoyed Jeremy. I've watched the entire old Dungeons and Dragons with the, the weigh-ins and uh, Jeremy Irons. And I enjoy Jeremy Irons' performance because he knew he had enough knowledge and talent and wisdom to know exactly what kind of movie he was in. And, I mean, he left teeth marks in the scenery just like he's supposed to. Mm-hmm. He He did it exactly right, exactly as bad as it needed to be done. But everyone else in that movie was, why are you here? Like, just what are you, what are you doing? You know, like the idea that they cast, you know, any of the weigh-ins as leads in that movie is unfortunate. Like, I enjoyed their work on In Living Color. It doesn't really have a place in a Dungeons & Dragons movie, right? No. Wrong cast, wrong script, wrong idea. I, it, it, from what I remember of the Dungeons & Dragons movie, it was made by some people who had like literally never made a movie before. How they got somebody to invest in that is probably an epic tale of its own and would probably be a more interesting movie. So honestly, that was it 1999, I think they came out with that movie. And it was thousand, I think. Oh my god, it was just it was so bad. Like not even yeah. it wasn't bad enough to be funny. It was just like like you've just you've done poorly. Like this is disappointing. And the decisions they made for this movie, I mean, almost unanimously were right. Where they wanted to take it seriously, where they weren't taking it seriously. Like it was clear that they're just like, hey, let's have a bunch of fun. Like the movie doesn't need uh-huh. to be any more than fun. Yeah. You know, and you get um, Hugh Grant, for instance, chewing up the scenery. Like he's a character that's like, he doesn't really like as an actor belong here, but like having somebody like that, who's like 
I don't know what's going on and I'm just going to like actor. Yeah. was great. You know, where I think everybody else, like the rest of the casting, not only were they great, but they were great for their roles. And And they were good. They had chemistry together and they were, Oh, they absolutely did. And they, you know, they, they made allowances and bent some rules for telling a story, uh, talking about Doric, the Druid, like, you know, obviously, if you're playing D and D as a druid, you're not going to be wild shaping every few seconds, you know. But that I mean, made for the the the, the mouse to hawk type of like, oh my god, I'm going to use them all up right now. I mean, yes, maybe, but yeah, you're right. It was probably a little too much. The only thing, like, it wasn't if, too if, much though. Like, uh, you know, that that sold with that that like, if you if you're thinking about druids as a class and 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 that type of druid, and what makes them special, like if you don't go above and beyond on screen, it doesn't sell it. Like it was a smart decision to, to say, you know what, this would be so much cooler if we turn this into one of the central action sequences. And this is where a lot of our special effects budget went. And it was great. Yep. Not a complaint at all. Like I'm not, you know, well, actually, eh, Oh my God. I'm not going to rule. I I I get out of it. I guarantee you that there is someone on Reddit right now going, well, actually, yeah. this is, there's too many. And they didn't, they spent all their sorcery points. The, uh, the, I have, I have two nits that I need to pick okay. and they are so exceedingly tiny that I feel embarrassed to be even bringing them up. One is a disappointment and the other one I think was a, a mistake, but I'm not sure how they could have fixed it. So the one thing that I'm a little bit disappointed in is that, and I can't remember any of the characters' names, but uh, Chris Pine's character, the, the bard, Edgin? doesn't Edgin? really do yeah. anything. Uh, Edgar, I think, or Ed, she calls him I think Ed. it was Edgin, yeah. Edgin, yeah. Edgin, uh, anyway. Something like that. Um, doesn't ever, because bards in D&D are spellcasters. And he really doesn't ever do anything bardy. It's it's a hundred percent like he, I, I, you made the comment that he's a lot more like a mastermind rogue than he is like a bard, and it's it's true. Like he's almost it almost feels like he doesn't have a class. He's like a level ten commoner. Mm-hmm. You know, like I have a ton of hit points and I'm pretty bright and I can figure stuff out, but I don't really have any skills. You know what I mean? Like he doesn't have any special abilities, and I I think that that was. Like it's, it's, it feels an awful lot like a conscious decision and I'm not sure that I disagree with it because how do you, how do you show that on screen, right? Without mm-hmm. being incredibly like just over the top or really, really corny. Um, he, I mean, he plays, he plays music a little bit and that's cool. Um, it would have been maybe better if instead of the sorcerer casting the illusion, if he did it as like a bard ability where he's like mm-hmm. playing music in the background and it's like echoing. So I don't, whatever. Um, but like I say, it's, it's a knit to pick. It's not yeah, a- that's a small net. And I, I think yeah. they played it safe. Like, you know, Chris yeah. Pine was the draw for this movie, like in terms yep. of a casting choice, uh, you know, being an A-list actor. And, and I he think nailed he, it. he nailed it. And it really felt like an ensemble piece because yep he also wasn't the main antagonist. Like he was the, the point of view character yeah. more. And 
I think if they'd have made him too heroic or gave him too much to do, it might have felt less like an ensemble piece. And it would have been Egan the Bard and his band of merry men kind of thing. Yeah, that's and that's kind of why I wonder if it was a conscious choice to to really pull like his power into the background. As I think so. To... And and making him a little more relatable too. Made him relatable and having sort of, you know, it was a simple emotional center to the story, but like I actually teared up both times watching it. You know, I'm yeah. not ashamed to admit that. I think the emotional centerpiece was showcased because, you know, he was powerless yeah. to, to do anything about it. You know, like it, it made that stuff more sincere. To me, yeah. I think. I, like, yeah. So it was prob- probably was a conscious choice. Like, like yeah. I say, like it's like if it's the movie something... were to get a sequel, if it gets mm-hmm. a sequel, I would like to see them do something with his character at that point. Cause now you've established this great sort of ensemble with chemistry and they've all had a chance would... to have the heroic moments, which is sh- what should happen in any D and D game. I would bet, I would, I would bet you a dollar and, and I will I'll find a dollar bill somewhere. Um, just for those of you listening from outside of Canada, we do not have paper money for dollars anymore. It is now a coin. Um, I will bet you a dollar that if it comes back with a sequel, Chris Pine won't be in it. The part of the bard will be played by his daughter. Maybe. And I am to- totally okay with that. I'm, I'm totally fine if he comes back too. Yeah. Um, I don't think that the movie had like was successful. Uh, in the box office as, as much as it should have been given like how good the movie actually was. So if you didn't see it in the box office, go out and actually pay and rent the movie, uh-huh. stream it, whatever you got to do, show them that the you're DVD. interested because like it is not a perfect movie, but it is a damn fun one. Yep. There's lots of fun. It's not, it's not going to win any major prizes. I, I, you know what? It might like the score was good enough that it might be, yeah you know director of photography potentially um i don't think any of the performances are gonna win oscars but whatever it it was good it was damn good and it was good enough so did you have any moments that just caught you enough to like have those just laugh out loud kind of favorite moments in the movie like for me, the the intellect develop, uh, devourer scene. Oh yeah, was one that, of them. The, the the throwaway line, and I have to think that it was probably improved. Well, that's just hurtful. <laughs> that got me. Two of the that, best. There was sort of meta moments where that connected what was really going on there, and the scene where uh, the paladin character just walks over the rock. Most yes. of that shit was completely improvised. They actually had to go back and reshoot some of it because somebody had said some things or something and there was like oh my god this is hilarious we need to actually yeah. you know include this yep yep and he's just <laughs> is he gonna go around the rock he's going straight over the rock yeah no it, yeah that got me too there was a bunch of there was a bunch of parts and i can't bring them all to mind but definitely the the oh well that's just hurtful <laughs> uh, like, it was just boom perfect. i'm not one to to you know laugh out loud or, or snort or you know whatever at, at lines like i i enjoy a movie and you know i'm I'm pretty stoic and level anyway but uh that one got both tanya and i <laughs> uh so the other the other minor and this is a little bit more of a complaint but I, I have no idea how you would actually fix this like you knew that hugh grant's character was gonna 
turn out to be like literally from the moment he showed up in the movie i'm like that is going to be the guy who turns around and is the evil guy for two reasons number one it's hugh grant Mm -hmm. he's too big for this movie he's got to be the villain because he's not he's not the hero (laughs) he has to be the villain um and the second thing is is like he's too perfect as the villain right like he's going to be the villain and then like throughout the entire movie they the, his character was perfect it was just enough of a, you know a smarmy con man to be yep he's convincing just enough of he's not evil he's just opportunistic mm-hmm. and that's fine i mean like he has literally done you know he has he's tried to take care of this young lady um like he's he's done it for all of the wrong reasons but he has actually done the right thing ish mm-hmm. um but at the end where he does the i'm gonna confess everything and tell you that i'm evil so that i can get my treasure i'm like can we can we find a different way to do this yeah. please you know because i mean like even hugh grant didn't pull it off perfectly it's no. fine. I recognize that we have to have that moment where it's revealed that he is evil and he's the bad guy and he's greedy and he's only after the treasure and he doesn't care about anyone. Can we find a slightly more subtle and or less cheesy way to do it? Yeah, I think they could have done it a little bit better. That scene specifically. Just that one. Um, That's the only one in the movie for me. Mm-hmm. What Everything I do else, like. The Red Wizard uh, Lady. Oh my god! Like mm-hmm. uh, it, it, it almost fades into the background. How perfect it is! It's just like this is just a thing that's that's happening, right? But she was, she was, mwah. and I think that's one of the reasons why the the Hugh Grant reveal, like, oh, he 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 was evil, was almost a throwaway at that point, is because it was sort of clear. Oh, he he yep. really isn't the bad guy. Like he is a bad guy that was part of all of this, and and. A good lesson for anybody that's wanting to play a character that is on the chaotic evil side of the, or evil side in general uh, of alignment. I mean, alignment's kind of dumb, but like, you know, there's a character that functioned now it's most, you know, it's in the story's past, but like there's a character that functioned as part of a group, their goals aligned as part of a group up to a certain point. You know, you you bought that they had history, even though this guy has been shady as hell. Mm-hmm. You know, um, he was willing to align himself with truly evil people because, you know, his his goals aligned there. Like, you know, I he thought was that more part neutral was, than evil, but yeah, yeah, I suppose. I I just it it brought to mind. Um, one of the things like in order to get to that point and do it well, um, Stephen Fry as the burgomaster of, uh, Lake town Mm -hmm. in the third or second or whatever Hobbit movie it was like, he did that exactly right. You know, like you have to, at that point in order to be sort of convincing or satisfying, you have to become a buffoon. Right, it, it, and I guess what kind of what kind of frustrates me about that particular scene is that up until that point he had been the the scenery chewing villain, and in that scene he became a little too serious, 
right? Like he needed to be chewing the scenery during his, the reveal to, and I forget her name, the daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, like at that point he has to be like, uh, ho ho, I'm going to tie you to the railway tracks. And, you know, like you have to become snidely whiplash at that point. Yeah. I don't know. I'm on the fence about that. Like, I think he wasn't a cartoonish villain. He was a cartoonish character. I think crossing the line into a cartoonish villain might've lessened that for me. Well, I think he did though. And that's the point. And if you're going to do that, you have to commit. Yeah. I I would have been more, more satisfied. I think with uh, her figuring out that he was a bad guy without him holding a knife to her throat. Right. For her to become suspicious, you know, sort of tease it throughout. And then at the end, she's like, no, I, I know that you're a bad guy because of X, Y, and Z. Right. Have her do the reveal, I think, would have been more satisfying than him, you know, holding a knife to her throat. I don't know. But I, like, it's, it's one of those things that like I'm, I'm making much more of a big deal about it. Yeah. Oh, it's an it. extremely minor net. Oh yeah, it's like it it has to happen. It was a little bit awkward. It was a 30-second scene, whatever. Carry on. Everything else was basically perfect. Yeah, yeah. We we don't got time for this. We got to move on. We got a magic hand fight that's going to happen and it's going to be great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the uh the big Bigby's grasping hand versus whatever the hell she was doing was Yeah. It's like this is like it's a fucking arm wrestle with magic. This is great. <laughs> and what a way to like, you know, so many movies struggle doing magic, right? Yeah. And I thought at times maybe that that end scene, and I'm okay with it because it was such a small part of the movie. I thought maybe that end scene got a little bit busy. There's just a little bit too much going on, but again, an extremely minor nit. Uh-huh. But they showed restraint, right? Like that could have just turned into a like a Marvel or hell, even there like was a no judge. There was no giant space laser. There was no space laser. There was, you know, not everybody was pew-pewing all at the same time. Like, you know, there's nothing more stereotypical and tropey than like two magic users and, and they shoot at each other with a spell and their beams meet in the middle. And there's this whole scene where they're struggling to, you know, yeah, you know, it happened in Harry Potter. It's happened in about half the fantasy books that I've ever read. Like, they showed restraint in not doing that. Now they essentially achieved the same thing, right? Yes. Instead of being magic beams, it was something a little more silly and playful. It was hands and it was totally, that's totally fine. Absolutely. It's like, I have to concentrate on this or it's going to fail. This is all I'm doing. I'm not doing this and lightning bolts and calling down, you know, rocks from the sky and also like flipping the, uh, um, the new Republic council chamber over on the other Jedi's head. You know, I'm not flipping around with a laser sword. Did you catch the, um, uh, the characters from the D and D cartoon? Oh, it was, it was small. You only see him a couple of times in the, the, the scene in the arena. Oh, in the maze? Yeah. Oh, uh, you, you oh, see. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Now I, yes, now I got it. I didn't realize that that was a reference. That's awesome. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't catch it the first time I watched it. I caught it the second time though. That is, yeah, that's awesome. Cause that cartoon, I mean, that cartoon was awesome. It was terrible. It was Please. horrible. If you didn't, if you did not watch it when you were a kid, 
don't go watch it now. And especially no. if you watch it when you're a kid, do not go watch it now. Don't it's go bad. watch it. Don't go watch it sober. Uh, if you're going to watch it now, like get, get fucked up and watch it. I'm sure it'd be great it. then. Watch it with friends. I mean, if you can watch it with friends and be talking about it, like, do you remember this being great? Yeah, I remember this being great. No, it's terrible. I know it's terrible. Let's watch another one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man, let's move uh, on to the pod bag. All right. You've got mail. All right, we're going to wrap up the show as we always do with questions from the audience, uh, our small audience of two or three at this point. <laughs> also, always <laughs> this for the second time. Yes. <laughs> if you'd like to uh, hit us up with a question, uh, email address is podbag at nerdingundertheinfluence.com. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, today's questions both come from Ian in California. Surprise, surprise. Uh, nothing overly silly in his list of 72 questions. Uh, the first one that I found interesting. Computers in film and te television. Oftentimes, computers and technology are depicted poorly in media. What is a movie or TV show that you feel does a good job of depicting technology realistically? And what is a movie or TV show that you feel does a poor job? Well, it's tough to try and figure out a movie that did computers well. Um, I think in, uh, oh man, in a giant sort of circle around approach, the movie Hackers uh, was not terrible. And here's a, there's, okay, so I've, I've said that I've, I'm having trouble thinking of it and now I've got two. Because the um, the hacker in Die Hard, Die Harder, Another Day to Die, Good Hard, whatever, the fourth one, the one with the uh, the fire sale. Oh, the, uh, the the Justin Long one. Yes. Yeah. Justin Long was was reasonably um, like that. That was, I mean, it obviously it was streamlined for you know presentation in a movie, but it wasn't terrible. Um, but here's one that's really terrible that actually came up in my YouTube feed the other day. And if we ever get a big audience, I'm probably going to get an angry email about this. Um, but Julia Stiles in Ghostwriter. I haven't um, seen it. No, and I don't think anyone has. And the unfortunate, she's very embarrassed about it. And she has good reason to be. I mean... It's it's terrible. The um, Neuromancer is actually something that I would recommend everybody should read because it is a great book. Um, you will learn about hacking the Gibson. Yes. Um, so uh, so there's a fine line. Okay, I, and I think you actually have to think about this question in two different ways. But I'll get into that in a second. There's an inherent problem in that, like technology, like the idea of computers and hacking and, and all that stuff. It's just not entertaining. Like, you know, if you're watching Boring. a real person do a real hack, it's probably You'll fall asleep. two weeks of automated probing and miscellaneous shit happening in the background. And like, it's not type a million words a minute with shit flying on your screen and blah, blah, blah. Like, sometimes you just have to do stuff to to give it some life on screen. Like, I, you yeah. mentioned the movie Hackers. I, honestly, like... That movie found a sweet spot for me. I love that movie. I still quote it probably once a week. I, what you see there movie. had nothing to do with computers. Like, you oh. know, 
but at the same time did a pretty good job of of showcasing a culture that was kind of built around them in an yep. era like that 90s era uh and oh early aughts is just the absolute worst for trying to portray anything related to computers and the internet like you take movies like the Sandra Bullock movie The Net for instance as, which I have never seen oh uh you might have to watch it like it is it is like two idiots one keyboard level of <laughs> dumb <laughs> Have you ever watched that Two Idiots, One Keyboard scene? I think it was NCIS or something like that. Like, it gets memed all the time. It is um, just the, the epitome of, you oh, guys yes. didn't even try. Yes, yes. That's the one where, because um, I watched NCIS religiously for a long time. It's the one where they're they're both, and she's like, oh, I can't do it. And they're both, like, they're both whacking on, on the, the same. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's oh. dumb. So that's I almost think, as bad as the Dilbert where the monkey is like, I can yeah. code with fight with like my fingers and my tail. Boom, boom, boom. So <laughs> I think in order to answer this question and not just have shit that does it badly, I think you need to look at it in two ways. Uh, you need to look at like contemporary technology and its portrayal, but I think you need to look at like speculative future technology and how that can be done well and how it can be done painfully. Like, you know, there wasn't a lot of thought put into early Star Trek. But, and its portrayal of technology wasn't always great, but there's some things that you look at at now and you're just like, this is utterly clairvoyant. It didn't take to the 23rd or 24th century to get there. Cell phones. Cell phones, iPads, medical imaging, like all kinds of stuff that just help, you know, and, and then let's be clear. Star Trek wasn't created in a vacuum. It is the product of of stepping on the shoulders of of sci-fi geniuses and and writers and and creators before Gene Roddenberry. But it is a show that like you could have done that horribly wrong. And sometimes it has been it done did. horribly wrong. Yeah. Sometimes it did, you you know it did, but sometimes it didn't. You know, and I think it was a great way of doing sort of speculative future technology, in a way that the technology isn't the message. You know, mm-hmm. like sort of like going back to my conversation about sci-fi when we were doing Firefly last episode, like creating a framework to allow you to plausibility uh, plausibly tell stories that might not land. You know, if you were to try and tell them in a contemporary setting with with contemporary yep. tones, like you know, sell morals and 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 sell different struggles and and overcoming them and and stuff, you know, Star Trek would use technology to do that in a way that like is absolutely relevant today. Talking about things like AI. Apparently, my oh. cat wants to be in in buttons. Say hello to everybody, Kevin. Hey, hello, Kevin. Say hello. <laughs> uh, as for what does it bad, man, I think everything else, like literally everything made before 2004, with the exception of hackers. And like hackers did it bad in a good way. Yeah. And that's the whole point is that I think if you're going to do it bad, you again, you have to lean into it. Yep. And if you lean into it, no, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Um. Like if you lean into if you're doing something badly and you lean into it enough, it becomes funny, right? Like mm-hmm. look at Austin Powers. Like Austin Powers is not a good movie. Um, none of the jokes are funny. 
but they took themselves just seriously enough uh, to to like lean into it hard and go, we are being foolish and we understand that, and that's what's funny. Uh, and it's it's kind of the same thing. I, I you know what though, I like I would have to say that the Matrix did a pretty good job of portraying technology and hacking in a way that was entertaining to present on on a screen. But and counter at the same to the time, way that everybody else was doing it. Yes. Where it's like, we're just going to abstract this thing where the concepts are important and how you're getting there don't matter. Mm-hmm. Like, it might as well be like, um, the other thing that that comes to mind is the the Tom Cruise movie. And I hate most of them, even though he's entertaining to watch. Uh, like Minority Report? Or? That one, yeah. yeah. Where it's like, you know, okay, yeah, we're, we've like this this like when you add a mystical aspect to it and it becomes this this kind of weird thing that just happens mm-hmm. then it almost becomes okay um it, it, it i think that there's a movie when you're talking about doing it badly that has to be mentioned and that's swordfish cuz it was terrible it was a bad movie that did technology badly Yes. Had some scenes in it, though. Uh, well, I mean, yes, but... I've... Uh, you know. I occasionally bust out the I need to swordfish this, referring to the scene <laughs> with him with a gun to his head and a woman between his legs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I'm going to type nothing but numbers and my fingers are never leaving the home row. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. Uh, other question for me, and do you ever get the urge to say, screw it, and go out and live in a log cabin in the woods? Do you think you would be able to live off the grid? Um, yes, every day. That's my dream. If I could do it today, I would do it. The unfortunate thing is, even if you live in a cabin in the woods off the grid, you still have to pay taxes, which means you need an income, which means that I can't do it. It's my... My income depends on you, good listeners, sending us large checks in, you know, non-denominational bills that are untraceable through various um, extradition treaties. <laughs> but just to be clear, not crypto, because no, fuck, fuck crypto. I mean, I'd be okay with crypto if you gave me like, you know, three or four hundred thousand bitcoins. Uh so let's break that question up into a couple of pieces as well, because there's the the sort of social aspect of just like living in the woods, being a bit of a loner, cutting yourself off from society. But then there's a the technological aspect of like disconnecting yourself from information and, and the happenings of the world around you. I think I could do the first part. Mm-hmm. And, you know, more and more, I think as as I get older, I almost feel the urge you know, uh, my wife and I are talking about, you know, having to buy a house here uh, towards the end of the year and the market sucks. And I'm like, I wonder if we could just live in a motor home for a while and just like, you know. And I've done that. No, and I, I don't recommend it. No, not I, in the winter anyway. In the summer, it's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Actually, growing up, going back to being, you know, dirt poor would lived in tents and motorhomes for a couple of years and not like motorhomes. I mean, converted milk trucks. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's rough. Uh, in terms of the technological disconnect, uh, connection, I don't think I could have ever done it before. Like, you know, 
I relied so much. I mean, like I don't have cable TV, so I don't watch TV unless it's like a stream through something. I think as I get older more and more, I can say it's plausible. You know, like start reading books again, reading books or, or being that curmudgeon old guy that thinks he can write books and actually do it. <laughs> Not I good have a books. book on the go, um, which, you know, someday may see the light of day. I've given up EverQuest. I have time now. Oh, geez. You've got like. Oh, 40 hours a week that I, I don't know what to do with. Become a doctor and, you know, make rockets and shit. I could become a rocket doctor. Can you imagine if that was an actual job? Rocket doctor. Uh, the, the rocket doesn't want to go. It's because you need to stick your finger up its ass. Because apparently that's what doctors do. I don't know. Maybe my doctor's just weird. Your doctor's just weird, man. Well, maybe I need to get him to buy me dinner. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I think that wraps things up this week, man. It's been nice talking to you. Yeah, you too. I'm planning on doing this again next week. We'll see. (laughs) Turning um, Windows there.